Beloved, many of Jesus' parables were directed against the Pharisees who were the religious leaders of that day. And the Pharisees often perceived this and it angered them greatly. But of all the parables, beloved, that Jesus taught, this one is the most direct attack upon the Pharisees, because this one expressly names the Pharisees. We have in this parable two men, and the first of them is a Pharisee. The word Pharisee is separated one. And the origin of the Pharisees is the intertestamentary period, which is the period between the Testaments. And that period of time, about 400 years or so, was a time of great apostasy and persecution of the Jews. And during that time, the Pharisees separated themselves and distinguished themselves from the other Jews, and they distinguished themselves by their devotion to the law of God and by their devotion to holiness. And actually then, the Pharisees, in the intertestamentary period, had a good beginning. But over time, the Pharisees corrupted themselves their strict law-keeping and their seeming piety were an empty show, especially at the time when Jesus walked the earth. And Jesus exposed their empty show, their hypocrisy, to the people. And this, of course, put him on a collision course with the Pharisees because they viewed themselves as the leaders and Jesus was a threat to the Pharisees' power and influence in the nation. In fact, the Pharisees were well respected. It was a surprise to the common people to find Jesus criticizing and condemning them because the Pharisees were viewed as pious, as the most pious people in Israel. They were used were the Pharisees to being treated with respect. They were called rabbi and they liked to be called rabbi. And the Pharisees believed that they had a prominent place in the kingdom of heaven and the common people shared that belief. And therefore it was a shock to the people when Jesus exposed the Pharisees for their wickedness and their hypocrisy. And yet, in this parable, the villain, as it were, in the parable is a Pharisee. To make matters worse for the Pharisees, Jesus deliberately chooses as a contrast to the Pharisee in this parable, the other extreme, the publican. The Pharisees were almost universally respected and revered by the people. The publicans, or the tax collectors, were despised 
and hated. And so deliberately, Jesus chooses for the second character in his parable a despised publican. You could not, therefore, have a starker contrast than this. The publicans were hated because they worked for the Roman enemy. Remember, the Romans had occupied Israel at this time, and the Romans were viewed as an occupying enemy, heathen force, and the publicans allied themselves with the Romans and collected taxes from the people, from these from the people for these foreign oppressors of God's people, Israel. And therefore, they were viewed as traitors. And they also had a reputation for being thieves and robbers because, as we know, think Zacchaeus, as we know, they would often collect more taxes than they needed to and keep the rest for themselves. Here we have, therefore, in this parable, beloved, a sharp contrast between the Pharisee and the publican. And Jesus puts his finger upon the besetting sin of the Pharisee. That sin was self-righteousness. And that sin is rooted in pride. Self-righteousness is the sin of basing one's acceptance before God, one's righteousness, therefore, basing one's acceptance before God either wholly or in part upon oneself. Self-righteous. And this sin of self-righteousness deceived and blinded the Pharisees. It deceived and blinded them to their need of salvation. Being already righteous in their own eyes, they did not need salvation from their sins. And it caused them then to stumble at the grace and mercy of God, which Jesus Christ preached in the gospel. This sin, says the prologue, as it were, to the parable in verse 9, this sin caused them to trust in themselves that they were righteous and also caused them to despise others. And Jesus then exposes this particular sin of self-righteousness by means of this parable. And that's striking because a parable is a memorable story. Jesus could have given an abstract theological treatise on self-righteousness, explain what it is and its various aspects and so on, but rather his method, which was much more effective, was to teach by means of this parable, to paint a vivid picture before the mind of the sin of self-righteousness. And therefore, this parable has a sting in it for all self-righteous Pharisees. And at the same time, it proclaims the beautiful gospel of grace to all penitent sinners, to men and women like the publican. 
Notice then, warned about a spirit of self-righteousness. Warned about a spirit of self-righteousness. Notice first, its expression. Second, its antithesis or opposite. And third, its reward. In this parable, Jesus gives a picture of someone who is self-righteous. And he chooses to use the Pharisee as his illustration of this sin. The Pharisee makes his way to the temple, and there he intends to engage in that most holy of exercises, namely prayer. These two men, says Jesus, go up to the temple to pray. What does a man do? What does a woman do in prayer before God? A person pours out the contents of his heart. That's what prayer is. But this Pharisee had twisted prayer by making it a performance before men. And you can see him in the parable. He takes a prominent place in the temple so that everyone can see him. He puffs out his chest and he begins to utter his carefully prepared, polished and refined words in a prayer in a loud voice so that everyone can hear him. And if the common people had been there, and they were, and they had looked at this man and listened to his prayer, they would have said, Behold a holy man of God. And that's what the Pharisee wanted them to say about him. But we ought to notice that the Pharisee did not pray at all. He went up, we are told, in verse 10, he went up to pray, but he did not actually pray. He boasted. Verse 11 says, he prayed thus with himself. Not to God, but with himself. Now, prayer is many things. Praise, thanksgiving, confession of sin, offering up of petitions. But prayer is not boasting. And here's a man boasting in the presence of God and therefore standing on very dangerous ground because God will not tolerate a man who boasts in his presence. And the Pharisee's prayer is utterly self-centered because he is utterly self-absorbed. I thank thee that I am not. I fast. I give tithes. He stands in the presence of God to inform God how great he, the Pharisee, is. And he expects God then to hear him with favor. And that shows you the foolishness and wickedness of this man's heart. He even begins his prayer hypocritically. He says, I thank thee. There's no thanksgiving in this prayer, however. 
It might appear pious, but it's a sham because the Pharisee is thanking God for something that he himself, the Pharisee, has done. And the rest of the prayer is simply this. Look how great I am. You, God, should be thanking me for what I have done for thee in thy kingdom. And if there is any thanksgiving at all, it is this, to thank God for giving him the power to save himself by his own good works, which is the perversion of thanksgiving. And this prayer then reveals what is in the Pharisee's heart reveals what the Pharisee trusts in. And that's clear too from the beginning of the parable, verse 9. This parable was spoken unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And that's clear too from what is missing in this prayer. There's something missing in this prayer. There is nothing in this prayer concerning the forgiveness of sins. There's no request here for the forgiveness of sins. Now there is sin. The Pharisee, he views sin. He sees sin all around him. In Israel, he spies all kinds of sinners. But he himself does not consider himself to be a sinner. The Pharisee cannot find any sin in his own life which he needs to confess before God. Does not believe himself to be a fallen sinner in Adam. Does not believe he has a sinful nature. Does not believe in the corruption of his own flesh does not believe that he needs the grace of God, and if there are any imperfections in his life, which I dare say he would confess under duress, he is confident that he can more than make up for all of his faults by his numerous good works. In fact, so far is the Pharisee from confessing sin that he boasts in his own merits before God. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. The law required one fast a year on the day of atonement. There were other fasts which were optional at certain times of the year, perhaps if certain things happened to one, but only one was required by the law, which was the annual day of atonement. But this man, he fasts twice a week. That's over 100 times more than the law required. And the law requires tithing of various things. But this Pharisee is so meticulous about tithing that he tithes everything that he possesses. And Jesus elsewhere in Matthew 23 talks about this, how the Pharisees tithed all of the little herbs that came into their possession. So this Pharisee has no sinful problem to deal with. 
He has all kinds of merits treasured up before God. He despises the other people around him. How could he have made such a mistake? How could he have sinned so grievously? How could he have blundered so in basic theology? How can someone convince himself that he is righteous of himself? And beloved, there are many, many people in the world today who believe this of themselves. And many of them, perhaps the majority of them, are in churches. Churches are where you find self-righteous people. And the answer to that question is twofold. First, this man had a very low view of God. Self-righteous people always have a very low view of God because they exalt themselves at the expense of God's glory. The Pharisee does not have a proper conception of the holiness and righteousness of God. If he did, he could never pray as he does here. And this low view of God leads him then to a high view of himself. He convinces himself, he convinces all the people around him that he is the supreme example of holiness. He expects God to share that opinion. And therefore he says to himself, I am entitled to a prominent place in heaven because I am righteous of myself. You hear that in churches today. People saying, I've done all kinds of good works. I've led a moral life and therefore I deserve to go to heaven. That's self-righteousness. And whole theologies are built upon this idea of self-righteousness. In the second place, a self-righteous person has a low view of God's law. The Pharisee here is confident that he has measured up to the demands of God's law. How is that possible? because he has lowered the standard of God's law in his own mind. He says, I thank thee that I am not, as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. How can he say that except he doesn't understand what the law is? He says, I am not an adulterer, but he is. In his heart, he is an adulterer. I'm not an extortioner, but he is. He's covetous in his heart. I'm not unjust, but you are, Mr. Pharisee. You are, because you do not measure up to the perfect standard of God's law. And if all you do is measure sin by the outward act, then you could very easily fall into the error of thinking that you have kept God's law. And the Pharisee does not believe, and no self-righteous person ever believes, that God demands more of him than he can perform. 
In fact, he believes that he can perform more than God demands of him. And the idea then that God demands perfect, lifelong obedience is foreign to his thinking. His obedience, he says to himself, and says before God in prayer, his obedience is enough. There is, beloved, a danger here for us that we respond to this parable with smugness, perhaps even with a parody of the Pharisee's prayer, God, I thank thee that I am not like this Pharisee. Instead, we have to confess we are like this Pharisee. There's a lot of Phariseeism in our hearts, and we have to examine ourselves in light of this word of God, how Pharisaical am I? Ask yourself some questions in light of this word of God. What is your attitude to holy things? to holy exercises of piety. Why do you do such things? Attend public worship, pray, sing, read God's word. In my case, preach God's word. Hear the preaching of God's word. Why do you do that kind of thing? Is it so that others will admire you? Or is it, and this is worse, is it because you think that by doing those things you can earn God's favor? Watch your attitude to God's word. Is it to humble yourself under God's word? Or is it to boast about how much you know, how much theology you understand, how many sermons you've preached or heard? Do you seek in the preaching that the preaching tell you how good you are? You come to be affirmed or flattered, or rather do you come to be instructed, warned, and even, if necessary, rebuked for your sin, and then to be led to the cross of Jesus Christ, where alone forgiveness is found? Do we approach God in prayer, in devotion, in worship, earnestly seeking God's blessing? and the comfort of the gospel, or do we do those things to earn God's blessing? Because if we seek to earn God's blessing, we are falling into the sin of the Pharisees. And then the other question is, what is our attitude toward other people? Because remember that the inevitable consequence of Pharisaical pride is a despising of others. That again is verse 9. And despised others. And then also the Pharisee himself, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, or even as this publican. You see what he did? He listed all the sins of which everybody else is guilty and from which he himself is exempt. He takes great delight in comparing himself with the publican. He sees the publican in the corner as 
this publican and that can be our attitude as well. We think sometimes, do we not, I am glad I am not as bad as he is, or not as bad as she is. We gossip about other people. Did you hear what she did? Did you hear what he did? I'm glad I didn't do that myself. Do we compare ourselves with other people, congratulating ourselves while criticizing other people? If we do, we are again behaving like the Pharisee in this parable. And that, beloved, is something that God abominates. God hates self-righteousness, self-righteous attitudes in the church. God calls us to humility. Humble before him and also humble before one another. And if we're humble, we will be slow to condemn other people and quick to assume responsibility for our own faults and sins. If we're humble, we will esteem others better than ourselves and work for peace and harmony in the home and in the church. If we're humble, we will be patient and kind and always assume the best of others because we know our own sins. We know we are debtors to the great mercy of God. We have that struggle that constant struggle in our own hearts, because in our hearts, in our sinful flesh, there lives, you might say, there lives a Pharisee, a proud, self-righteous Pharisee. As soon as we do something we think is good, our hearts begin to swell with pride. And we're tempted then to trust in that good thing that we think that we have done. And our sinful nature bristles at the idea that there is no good in our flesh and that our salvation is entirely by God's grace. And so an appropriate prayer for us would be this, God be merciful to me, a Pharisee. God deliver me from the self-righteous pride of a Pharisee to which I am prone by nature. There's the expression then of a self-righteous spirit. It's one thing, beloved, to portray the Pharisee accurately as a self-righteous proud boaster. That was shocking and offensive enough to the Pharisees and to the audience. It's far worse, as far as Christ's audience is concerned, now to make an unfavorable comparison with the publican, which is exactly what Jesus then goes on to do. In this parable, beloved, Christ presents the publican as a positive role model. He says, in effect, do not be like the Pharisee, whom everyone admired, but be like the publican. Not, of course, in every respect, but in what the publican is seen to do in the parable, be like this publican in your attitude and your actions, seek to emulate the publican. 
The behavior and the attitude of the publican are the opposite of the Pharisee. The posture of the publican in prayer shows his humility. He stands afar off. He's afraid and feels unworthy to come too close to the holy place of the temple of God. He will not even lift his eyes to heaven because he feels unworthy and ashamed in the presence of God. He smites upon his breast, which is a posture of mourning over his sins. Can you imagine, beloved, the Pharisee ever doing that? And Christ describes the publican this way in verse 14. He humbles himself. Unlike the Pharisee, the publican knows to whom he's coming. He's coming to the temple of God to meet with God. And even as he enters the temple of God, the holy courts of the Lord, he's struck in his soul at the thought of God, how holy, how righteous, how almighty this God is. And the publican understands that no sinful man can stand in the presence of such a God and live, and therefore he adopts the only appropriate attitude, deep self-abasement before God. And faced with this reality, all feelings of self-worth flee from his mind. He's overcome with a sense of his own unworthiness. And that's something that the Pharisee lacked completely. That attitude then, of course, leads to a very different kind of prayer. The Pharisee prays, I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. But the publican, he mentions no works that he has done. To the mind of the Pharisee come all of these works that he has done, but the publican can't think of anything to mention before God. All he thinks about, all he knows about are his sins. The publican cannot think of anything that he has done which could possibly recommend him in the sight of God. He only remembers all the works for which he deserves condemnation. The Pharisee prays effectively, I thank thee that I am righteous. The publican prayer is the opposite. God be merciful to me, a sinner. A sinner is one who has fallen short. A sinner is one who has failed to keep God's commandments. Indeed, has deliberately missed the mark of keeping God's commandments has sinned in thought and in word and in deed. And the publican's confession goes deeper than simply confessing his evil deeds. He confesses his evil nature. I am sinner. I am sinner. I am one whose nature is sinful. Every moment of every day I sin. I fall short of God's glory. I was born in sin. My nature is such that by nature I cannot do anything good. And the Pharisee who compared himself favorably with others 
the publican is so overwhelmed by the thoughts of his own sins, he cannot think of a worse sinner than himself. There's no, I thank thee that I am not like other men are in the publican's prayer. The publican says, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And the Greek original has the sinner. God be merciful to me, the sinner. In his own mind, beloved, he is the only sinner and he is the greatest sinner and he has no interest then in comparing himself with other people. He is conscious conscious of one thing, that he is the sinner and deserves condemnation before God. And surely he thinks, as he looks around the temple that day and sees many worshippers in the temple that day and sees the Pharisee even who despises him, surely he says to himself, there could be no one who is as bad as me and certainly no one who is worse than I am. I am the chief of sinners. The self-righteous Pharisee, beloved, looks within himself for his salvation. The publican looks away from himself to the glory and mercy of God. God, he says, have mercy on me. The Pharisee saw no need of that. He did not need God's mercy because he was righteous in himself. The publican sees himself as needing God's mercy. And he knows he is not entitled to God's mercy. He knows that mercy is God's prerogative to give or to withhold. He knows, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy from the book of Exodus. Mercy, he understands, is the opposite of merit. The Pharisee believes in salvation by merit, but the publican, he clings to the hope of salvation by God's mercy. And does he have any hope of God's mercy? Well, of course he does, because he comes in faith. He comes believing that God is merciful. As an Old Testament saint, he knows that there is mercy with God. And that's why he has come to the temple that day. Psalm 130, we'll sing later, God willing, says this, If thy Lord shouldst mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? But there is forgiveness with thee, that thou mayest be feared. That's why he came. He knows that there is forgiveness with God, and so he comes humbly and yet confidently into God's presence, knowing that God is merciful. He's come to the temple. He knows the significance of the temple. The temple is a place of sacrifice. Sacrifice means little to the Pharisee, because the Pharisee does not need a covering for his sin, he thinks. But the publican understands the temple. He understands sacrifice. He needs a covering for his sins, and that's why he's come. 
and the entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament of the blood of animals poured out and sprinkled in the Old Testament, it all pointed to the great sacrifice that one day would take away the sins of God's people when the Lamb of God would come. And this publican trusts in that Lamb of God. Perhaps the publican did not know But the one who would take away his sins had already come into the world. And in a short time, he would lay down his life on the cross to make atonement for this poor man's sins. And that truth comes out, beloved, in the words of the publican, which can be literally rendered this way, God be propitious with respect to me, the sinner. God be propitious with respect to me, the sinner. That word propitious, propitiation, propitiate, has the idea of being appeased or being placated by the turning away of wrath. Here then is the plea of the anguished publican. O God, let there be some way in which thy fierce and just anger can be turned away from me and I can again be received into thy favor. Which, by the way, in God's providence, is the subject of our sermon this evening on on Christ's suffering. Let there be a way in which thy fierce and just anger can be turned away from me and I again received into thy favor. God, be propitious with respect to me, the sinner. The publican has his theology right. The publican knows far more theology than the Pharisee does. The publican knows that God cannot simply overlook sin, but must punish sin. And the publican's hope is that there is a way in which someone else or something else can take that punishment. That's his meaning. God be propitious with respect to me, the sinner. The publican, of course, is looking at the sacrificial system of the temple, but that points forward to the real propitiation which is the cross of Jesus Christ. The faith of the publican is fixed on the cross of the Messiah. Christ, by his own offering of himself on the cross, has fulfilled all the Old Testament sacrifices which could never take away sin. In great mercy, Christ stood in the place of all his elect people as a willing substitute and bore the punishment which they deserve. And now the fierce and just wrath of God against our sins has been turned away. God is propitiated and we are delivered. But the Pharisee, in his pride, beloved, will never utter this prayer. God be propitious with respect to me, the sinner. A Pharisee, a self-righteous person, cannot utter such a prayer. 
because he hates the cross of Christ. There's no greater affront to the pride of man than the message of the cross of Christ. When a man stands before the cross, all thoughts of self-righteousness must vanish. Because the cross tells me that I am so sinful, so wicked, so helpless of myself, that only the death of the Son of God in my place could deliver me. And that message is abhorrent to the self-righteous man, whether it be the Pharisee in the parable or the self-righteous churchgoer today. He does not like that message. He hates it. He says, I do not need that. That's extreme. The idea that the Son of God should die on a cross for me, I don't need that, says the self-righteous man. My situation is not so bad as to need that. There must be something I can do to earn my own salvation. Perhaps other people might need something like that. That publican there might need that. But not me. I don't need that. I can save myself, thank you very much. That's the way the Pharisee, that's the way the self-righteous man thinks. At the end of the parable, Christ concludes... The Pharisee is not justified. Verse 14 says, I tell you, this man, this man being the last mentioned man, the publican, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. And that, beloved, was a shock to the Pharisees in the audience and to the common people because they viewed the Pharisees as being justified. But here is the authoritative verdict of the Son of God. Only one man in the parable was justified, and it was not the Pharisee. I tell you, he says. The people imagined, if any of these two men is going to be justified before God, it will have to be the Pharisee. And that miserable publican, well, he is beyond all salvation. That's how they thought, but they were wrong. And the confidence of the Pharisee is utterly vain. His works, his prayers, his meticulous observance of God's law, all rejected, and he himself is rejected. He is not justified, which means he is condemned. The Pharisee believed himself to be in the category of the just. He thanked God that he was not unjust, but Christ places him in the category of the unjustified, which is to say the condemned. What reward did the Pharisee have? He had the applause of men, but he did not go home with the approval of of God and the Pharisee knew it. He went home with God testifying in his conscience that he was against him, that his deeds were evil. 
Of course, the Pharisee would never admit that. But that was what God said to him in his conscience as he went home. And that's going to be, and that is, the verdict of God upon all Pharisees, upon all self-righteous people who trust partly or wholly in their works as their justification before God. They stand condemned and on the last day they shall be condemned. But worse for the Pharisee is that Jesus declares that the publican goes down to his house justified. I tell you, this man, the publican, went down to his house justified rather than the other. And that's dreadful. It's wonderful for the publican, but it's dreadful for the Pharisee because the Pharisee will see the publican entering heaven on the last day while he himself, the Pharisee, is cast out. And Jesus here, beloved, teaches justification of a sinner before God without works. He does so in language as clear as the language used by the Apostle Paul in his epistles. And we see from this that gracious justification without works, the great doctrine of the Reformation, you might say, gracious justification without works is not the invention of Paul, not the invention of the Reformers, but the doctrine of Jesus himself. The publican, says Jesus, is justified. And to be justified is to be declared righteous by the pronouncement of God as judge. Here comes a publican. He confesses his sins before God. He seeks the mercy of God. And God says about this publican, justified righteous in my sight, worthy of eternal life. Now the publican, of course, entered the temple as a sinner. He remained a sinner, but when he leaves the temple and goes home, he is justified. What happened? It's not that the publican performs some great work on the basis of which he is now justified, but it's God has justified him by his grace on the basis of the perfect work of Jesus Christ, which was pictured in the sacrifices of the temple. Here's Romans 4, verse 5, But to him that worketh not, but believeth, on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. The publican then, beloved, went down to his house justified. And that means he went home with the consciousness of his justification. 
It's not merely this, that God in heaven pronounced him just and didn't tell him, so he didn't know. But rather it's this, that God in heaven pronounced him just and spoke that word of justification to the man's soul and heart so that he is now conscious of his justification. Peace floods that man's soul. He comes into the temple convicted of sin, beating upon his breast in sorrow over a sin. He goes home from the temple knowing that his sins are forgiven. And that, beloved, is our experience too. We come before God, burdened by the guilt of our sins. In the preaching of the gospel, Christ declares to us who believe that we are freely justified, wholly without works, on the basis of the perfect work on the cross by faith alone. And having heard that gospel, and having believed that gospel, we go down to our house justified. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we thank thee for the gospel of grace. We pray, O Father, deliver us from the temptation to be self-righteous and proud, and teach us humility, and we thank thee that thou dost give us the consciousness that we are justified by thy grace. We go home. We go home justified in our own consciousness. We thank thee for that peace that comes to those who believe in Jesus. We pray that thy gospel might go forth and that many will believe and turn from their sins and experience the joy of salvation in thy Son. For Christ's sake, amen.